We come now to God's word uh, taken from Luke chapter 4. We'll read verses 14 through 30. And I'll pick up where Joel left off last week. You'll remember last week Joel uh, explained and read the passage regarding the temptation of Jesus. And now Jesus comes to uh, preach the gospel in Nazareth. Hear the word of the Lord, taken from Luke's gospel. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, Heal yourself. What you have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Then he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up, and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, this is God's word. Why don't we take a moment and um, ask God for his help in understanding it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this part of scripture, for Luke's gospel. We thank you for Jesus, that he came to proclaim good news to us we who are poor in spirit, we who are needy, we who are, who are sinful, we thank you that he came for us. And so help us to um, understand this passage, to receive the good news of Jesus offered in it. And Lord, we pray for those who um, are considering Christ, 
We pray that you would use this word uh, to strengthen their faith, uh, to grant them faith as well. Lord, give us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I uh, thought of as I was reading this passage was that Jesus was an offensive preacher. Not, not in a belligerent way, not in a, a rude, kind of obnoxious uh, radio talk show host kind of way. He wasn't offensive in that way. But he was, I say he was offensive because he preached a message that offended people. And people clearly rejected him because of that message. There were some who were offended by how inclusive he was. Jesus befriended unlikely people. Among his followers were, were uh, people from the fringes of society, uh, tax collectors. People didn't like tax collectors in those days. Uh, adulterers, um, the, the poor, um, those who had skin conditions like leprosy. And Jesus included them. He befriended them. And that offended people. Some people were offended by how exclusive Jesus was. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. People didn't like that. Some people were offended when Jesus called out sin. No one likes having their sins being called out. But of course, people also took offense when Jesus forgave sinners. Because Jesus took his message to the worst of the worst, and he offered grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness. That was offensive to some people. The Apostle Paul says uh, that Jesus, uh, that Jesus' message, the message of the cross, was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. And so today in our passage, where do we find Jesus? We find him in a, in a synagogue. He's preaching and people are offended by his message. And in fact, they are so offended, they want to kill him. Let me point out a few things that will help us understand the passage better. The, the next thought that occurred to me as I was preparing for the sermon was that when Jesus preached, he went to his hometown. He preached to his own people. Now, Jesus was a Nazarene. He, who here knows what a Nazarene is? No one. Okay. That's okay. A Nazarene is someone from Nazareth, uh, different than a Nazarite. Um, the Nazarenes were those who were raised in Nazareth. Nazareth uh, was this little kind of backwoods village, kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was smaller than Warrandyte, smaller than Belgrave Heights, Mount Evelyn. Um, it was a tiny community, about 400 people there. Um, so think about, you know, uh, the size of Donvale, um, uh, and how many people attend our church, the village was just a little bit bigger than Donvale. It was a poor village. We know that from archaeology because archaeologists have not been able to find any paved roads or any kind of uh, public buildings. It did have a synagogue, this little synagogue, uh, which is the Jewish equivalent of the church. And the synagogue that uh, Jesus preached at was Jesus' own synagogue. This was his hometown. And he would have attended this synagogue as a boy. And the people in that synagogue would have been friends and family members and neighbors, and everyone would have known each other. It would have been a congregation much like our congregation. And Jesus, it was his custom every week to go to the synagogue. Uh, he didn't excuse himself from the synagogue. 
Um, and he didn't, you know, on Sunday or Saturday morning, he didn't wake up thinking, oh, I'm not going to go to synagogue today because ooh, the rabbi is too boring or the worship isn't lively enough. He, he went because he wanted to be with God's people and he wanted to worship God. That's why he went to the synagogue. It was his custom, and he did it every week. And we see uh, he comes back to preach at his home synagogue. Look at verse 22. And everyone kind of knows who he is. He's Joseph's son. And as he walked into the synagogue, you can imagine that people would have said, oh, hey, there's Joseph's son. Oh, oh I remember Joseph's son. Uh, he, he used to play with my kids. Uh, or, oh, yeah, I remember seeing Joseph's son working on that uh, construction site. So uh, they knew him as Joseph's son. They knew him as a Nazarene. They also knew him as uh, a blue-collar worker because he, did, he took up the trade of his father. So he has these, these very humble origins. There's something that the congregation actually failed to realize about Jesus, though, on that Sabbath. Um, they failed to realize that he was the Son of God. Now, if you look at back chapter 4, look back at verse 3, or you could look at verse 41, there are several places in this passage where Satan and the demons, even though they hate Jesus, where Satan and the demons recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. But his own people don't recognize that he's the Son of God. They miss the Messiah. They miss his identity. And, he, and even, we'll see soon in this passage, that he actually reveals, in kind of in part reveals his identity as the Messiah, and they reject him for it. So they fail to realize who Jesus really is. The question maybe that I should ask is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, several weeks ago, I was sharing my faith with um, a Hindu friend. And as we were talking, he said to me, oh, I, I like Jesus. I love Jesus. But I also love Vishnu and Haraman and Ganesha and all of these Hindu. He listed off all these Hindu gods. And, and in his mind, Jesus was a good teacher. He could have even been divine, but he's one of many in, in Hinduism. I was chatting with a Muslim also a couple weeks ago. He also likes Jesus, but he hates the fact that Christians claim him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And for the average Australian, um, Jesus is just a favorite curse word. And it, it's true, isn't it? I mean, here in Australia, people, people uh, there are some people who like Jesus. They don't recognize him as, as God, but they, they like the idea of Jesus. He's a good teacher. There's some people who hate Jesus and some people who are opposed to Jesus. So people have all kinds of perceptions about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, the Bible presents Jesus as the Son of God, God himself, come down in human form, the Savior of the world. And... Throughout the gospel, we'll see that Jesus reveals his identity as such. And so when you evaluate who Jesus is and the claims that you make, you have to, as C.S. Lewis did, come to one of three conclusions. You have to either believe that he, he was lying about who he was, he was mistaken about who he was, or he was who he said he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. And if he is, and we know he is, 
then, then the next logical implication is that we trust him and follow him. So um, let me move on to a second thing that I want to point out from this text. The second thing I want to point out from this text is that when Jesus came to his own home synagogue, he came to preach good news. It, the, the passage that he read from isn't a doom and gloom kind of passage. It's a, actually a really encouraging passage. And so he comes to deliver good news to the synagogue. It's no accident that Jesus shows up at that day, on that time, at that synagogue. Every word that Jesus speaks, every action uh, he takes, every place that he goes is calculated. It follows the agenda and the will and the plan of God, his Father. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I, my life is pretty random, you know. I decide, yeah, I'm going to wear socks and shoes or socks and sandals or I'll eat muesli and cocoa puffs or I'll, I'll uh, go to work at 8.45 or 9.05. And in life, I don't, there's no real agenda to my life. There's a loose agenda, but no, no real um, some rhyme or reason sometimes. But Jesus does nothing that Jesus does is random. Everything has a purpose. The people he meets has a purpose. The places he goes has a purpose. When he goes to heal the blind man, he knows that there will be a blind man in that place and he goes there for a purpose. And the entirety of his life follows the, the definite will and plan of his father because he knows that he must go to one place. Where is that place? He knows that he must go to the cross to atone for our sins and then to be resurrected and to be glorified. And we are told throughout Luke that not only is he following the Father's plan, but the Holy Spirit is with him every step of the way. From the, like from the moment of his birth and his conception, then at his baptism, and then as he is led into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit is upon him and with him, um, ensuring that, um, that his ministry is effective. And here in verse 4, look at verse 14. We see, we are told, Luke says, that he came to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is at work through his preaching ministry. Something we need to remember that, you know, as Christians, when we read the scriptures or when we study the Bible, we hear preaching, it's the Holy Spirit that's actually, as we believe, is presently active and working, even now, in our hearts and our minds, to help us understand God's word. So, coming back to the, the narrative here, he arrives in Nazareth, he rocks up to the synagogue, he gets asked to do the Bible reading, and as he's walking to the front, uh, the attendant grabs this scroll, and it would have been a, probably a, maybe a leather scroll, but more likely a papyrus scroll, fairly heavy. These are the days where they didn't have PowerPoint projectors or, or even books for that matter, and opens up the scroll and points to Isaiah 61. And, he, and Jesus begins reading. And um, everyone would have stood. They rose for the reading of God's word. Now, standing actually for the Bible reading uh, happened in every synagogue. Even in, back in North America, we actually, in our churches, we uh, used to stand for the reading of the word, um, which was great until the pastor decided, hey, we're going to read from Psalm 119. And then we've been standing there for like 20 minutes, and I'm like, okay, 
<laughs> this is tiring, but they would, they would rise for the reading of the word. That's a significant detail, and I'll tell you more about that later. And so they're standing there. Jesus is standing on the front, from the front, and he begins ready, reading, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and then starts walking back to his seat. And it's quiet. And all eyes are fixed on him because everyone in that congregation is expecting that he's going to say something. You know, imagine, you know, one of the pastors gets up and we, I do the Bible reading and then close up the Bible and we're done. Church is done. Uh, they were expecting him to say something and, and he, he went and he sat down. And in those days, a typical rabbi or a teacher might get up and say something like this about the Bible reading. They might, they might say something like, Dear congregation, Isaiah 61 is about the Messiah. Friends, Isaiah in this chapter promised that one day a king would come and he will come to save us and deliver us and free us from our enemies. And congregation, we long for the day when that Messiah, whoever he is, will come and set us free and restore our kingdom. Now that would be what a typical rabbi might say. But Jesus is not a typical rabbi. And he doesn't give them a typical explanation. What does he say? Look at verse 21. He says, Today, the scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying? He's saying all of the things that Isaiah prophesied and predicted all of those years ago have come to pass on that day in their hearing. And the implication was that, that all of the things that Isaiah said were actually in effect, in, in effect about Jesus. That this passage of scripture was a scripture that was written about Jesus, that Jesus would be the king, the Messiah, who would come to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind, and to give physical sight to the physically blind, and to give freedom from the devil, and to give freedom from sin, and to give freedom from addiction, and to give forgiveness for those who are feeling condemned, and to help those who are spiritually poor, and to save those who are lost. That sounds like good news. And it, it certainly was good news. We'll see throughout Luke that it was good news. For many people, it was good news for blind Bartimaeus, who was received his sight back. It was good news for Mary Magdalene, who, who was delivered from demons. It was good news for the leper, who was cleansed of his skin condition. It was good news for Zacchaeus, whom Jesus forgave. And the message of Christ is good news for us as well. If we come to him and we, we can say to him that I am poor in spirit and that I am needy, and that I am a sinner, and I need God's grace. That's, that's when Christ's good news is, for, is good news for us. I was uh, coming back to my Hindu friend. I was sharing, talking about my faith with him. And um, he was telling me about what he believes, and he was telling me about the cycle of karma. 
and how karma is just this cycle of rebirth where you know you're born you're born an ant and then if you're good enough you graduate to a frog or a dog or a human and then once you're a human if you die and you're 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 good enough or you're you're kind of a decent person you might die and you might become a dog if you're a really bad person you might become a cat or a rat and I said to him, I'm like, that's horrible. That's awful. You know, what, you know, why would you want to, that's just a miserable existence. And it's, it's all about what you do and how you can contribute to your own salvation. That, that if you are a good enough person that you might be able to earn yourself a better life. That's karma. And really all the religions of the world have kind of this theme in common. They, they teach that you must do something in order to reach God. The focus of religion is, is on us, what we can do for ourselves. Performance, rituals, chanting, praying enough, singing enough, doing something enough that God might accept us, being pure enough or wise enough or devoted enough or, or serving enough. But unfortunately, that's not what Christian, Christianity is about or what, what religion should be about. Uh, Christianity is different. Christianity is all about what God has done through Christ for us. Christianity is the exact opposite of every other religion in the world. Christianity te teaches that it's when we realize that we can't do anything for ourselves that we can come to Jesus and find grace and mercy. God sent Jesus to accomplish all that we could not accomplish, to atone for the sins that we could not atone for, <clears throat> to obey the law that we could not obey, to offer his entire life in a way that we could never offer up our own. And so Jesus comes to these people and he preaches good news. He preaches that he is the way that, that poor people and captives and the blind and the oppressed can find freedom. Now, let's, uh, a third thing that occurred to me this morning, and my final point here, is that when Jesus preached, um, his message was rejected by the congregation. He was rejected by his own people. What an awful feeling that would be. You know, to, to go back to your home church and to have everyone stand up, rise up against you and try and kill you. I couldn't imagine, you know, after the sermon, you guys rise up and take me to the cliff and try to throw me off. That would be an awful feeling. And we know that though Jesus was perfect, though that he was fully God, that he still had human emotions, and that would have been a really horrible experience to go through. Immediately after the Bible reading, people were murmuring, isn't this Joseph's son? Son of the carp carp carpenter, son of a blue-collar worker. Uh, they were amazed initially because he did speak well. And it would have been amazing that, you know, someone from such humble origins could could become so famous in the region of Galilee. But we see in this passage that things begin to escalate. And they start to escalate at verse 23. Look at verse 23. Jesus, immediately after um, reading the Bible, he says to them, Doubtless, you will quote this well-known expression, which was, 
physician, heal yourself. Now, in ancient Rome, that expression was a common expression that you would use to question someone's authority. So, if you, basically the premise is this, if you are, really are a physician, then you should be able to heal yourself. And likewise, if you really are the Messiah, then you should be able to prove it by doing the same miracles here that you did in the surrounding towns and areas. And things start to escalate because people aren't, they're hearing what Jesus is saying and they don't like it. And you get to verse 24 and things escalate even more. He says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he says that to point out to them the history of Israel. Throughout the history of Israel, prophets would come to preach the message, God's message, to the people, and the prophets would be either stoned or killed or driven away. And so he's saying, kind of in a covert way, saying to them, just as the people of Israel drove away the prophets of old, you are going to reject and drive me away. And the room gets even more tense. And it's about to get even more tense as Jesus reminds the congregation of two famous stories from the Old Testament. You'll notice in your Bibles that there are two famous prophets mentioned. Who are they? Elijah and Elisha. Yeah. Elijah and Elisha. And he, he kind of paraphrases the two stories to the congregation. The first story is taken from 1 Kings chapter 17, and he talks about Elijah. And he says, guys, remember Elijah. You, you all know the story that Elijah existed. He lived in a time of famine. And he, he actually left the borders of Israel to go north to what is modern-day Lebanon, to a town called Zarephath, where he met a widow. And, and you might remember that this widow was not Jewish. She was from Zarephath. And she had no Jewish, Jewish blood in her at all. And, and you remember how Elijah performed a couple of miracles in that woman's life. One miracle was uh, that he, he ensured that she had enough bread and oil, or flour and oil to survive. And then the second miracle was that she raised her son from the dead. And you, you might remember that this Gentile woman, who's not a Jew, she came to faith. So he's retelling the story to the congregation. And then he goes, oh, and there's another story. You remember the story about Elisha? Taken from 2 Kings 5, it's a story of a Gentile man, actually a Syrian. He's not Jewish either. He's a Gentile. And you'll remember how Elisha healed this man by instructing him to bathe in the Jordan River seven times. And immediately he was cured of his leprosy. And as a result, he came to believe in Israel's God. And so he tells these two stories. Now, these two stories have something in common. The first thing is that both Elijah and Elisha were rejected by their own people. The second thing is that they had a ministry to Gentiles. And Jesus is kind of telling them that his ministry will be somewhat the same. Jesus will be rejected by his own people, and he will have a ministry to Gentiles, to outsiders, to outcasts, to those who are unclean, those who, that, who, you know, your common Jewish person would deem as unworthy or unacceptable. 
And things were really tense because he's, he's saying that the Messiah would come for the Gentiles as well. And you have to remember that, that in those days, there was much tension between Jews and Gentiles in Israel. You'll remember that there was much racial division in Israel. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Roman Gentiles were occupying the land of Israel, and they were oppressing Jewish men and women. And Jesus is saying to the congregation that the Messiah would come also for the Gentiles. And by this point, the temperature in the room is red hot, so hot that the villagers of his hometown, they rise up to kill him. Now, remember how earlier I said the congregation rose up to hear God's word, and now they're rising up to kill God's messenger. And they take him out of town, and they attempt to throw him off a cliff. They probably felt like they were justified in doing this, because in the Old, Old Testament allows a Jewish people to execute false prophets, and they would have thought, hey, this is a false prophet. And they reject his message. And of course, the execution is unsuccessful. Jesus escapes the mob, and he goes on to preach elsewhere. But here's the thing. On that day, the congregation had to make a decision. They were faced with the question, do we embrace this man? Do we accept him as our Savior? Do we accept the claims of, of this man, or do we reject him? Well, it's a question that everyone is faced with in the world. It doesn't matter where you live, where you're from, whether you're on a tropical island or whether you're in the polar regions of Canada or Antarctica or wherever, we all have to face this question. Is Jesus who he says he is? And will we follow him? Will we put our faith in him? And of course, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, people reject him for all kinds of reasons. People don't. People reject him... Uh, on the basis that he is too exclusive because he, because he says, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And people don't like the exclusivity of Jesus. Or others don't like that he's too inclusive. He welcomes anyone and everyone to follow him. And among him, his followers are former drug dealers and murderers and thieves and gang members even. We see Jesus forgives even the lowest members of society. And he takes them in at their worst, and he repurposes their lives. Others will reject Jesus because they think, hey, I don't need Jesus. Um, they, they don't believe that, that they need forgiveness because they haven't sinned, or they believe that they're good enough, or strong enough, or wise enough, or moral enough, or religious enough, and God will accept them on that basis. Others will reject Jesus because it means giving up those sins that they love and cherish most. And for, I mean, for this congregation in Nazareth, I think perhaps one of the reasons why they rejected Jesus, I think, is because he was too, he was too inclusive of the Gentiles. And they couldn't bear the thought of the Messiah coming to rescue their enemies. Here's the thing about rejecting Jesus. When, when, when you reject Jesus, you reject all of him. Uh, some people think, oh, you know, um, can't wait for eternal life. I'm going to get up to heaven and I'm going to golf for the rest of my eternity. And yet they, they reject, they have a faulty view of heaven, for one. 
and for two, they reject the way of salvation. You can't reject Jesus and, and then think, hey, you know, I'll still be forgiven for my sins, or I'll still find eternal life, or I'll still find grace and peace and mercy with God. Another thought that occurred to me as I was preparing the sermon was that it's not only Jesus whom people reject. When people reject Jesus, they reject the church, and they reject the Christians who belong to the church. When a Muslim converts to Christianity, and this is kind of an extreme case, his entire world falls apart, especially in, in very conservative regions of, of the Middle East. He, he, because, of his, because he has embraced Jesus, he, he will lose his parents and his brothers and sisters, uh, his cousins, his whole community. He'll lose, he might lose his job. He might even lose his life because he has embraced Jesus. In Australia, I mean, I would say that it's to a lesser extent, but perhaps some of you have faced rejection in your life because of your faith. Maybe you've lost a friend over it. Maybe people have mocked you because of your faith. Uh, maybe you've, I mean, I know of this case in Canada where a, a woman wasn't offered a job because the employers, the employers offered her the job and then when they found out she was a Christian, uh, they revoked their offer. So, I mean, these things do happen. And I guess one of the questions we can ask ourselves is, what, how should we respond to that when we are either mocked or, or rejected or mistreated because of our faith? And the question is, do we repay evil with evil? Do we exact revenge? Do we mock those who mock us? Do we get hostile? Do we sit and complain that we live in such a horrible world? Or do we play the victim? Do we carry on? Do we show love to those who persecute us? Even when we face hostility, do we, in, do, we, do we show people grace and kindness and mercy as Jesus showed them? Or do, we, or do we mock those who mock us? You know, the thing that struck me about this passage is that Jesus knew that he would be rejected in the synagogue, and he went anyways. Because he knew that they needed to hear the good news. Even though they would reject it, he knew that these people uh, needed to hear the gospel. And the difficult task we face is to, is to share the good news of our salvation to people who we know may reject us for it. And if you do face rejection in life, I mean, you can, you can know that you're not alone, that Jesus faced it himself. Other Christians face it. And as you face it, you can ask God, God for his help. And one last thing before I close. I don't want to assume that everyone here is on the same page. There might be people here who are on a different page than I am. There might be people who are considering Jesus or who have not really thought about Jesus but just attend church every week. And there might be people who don't like Jesus, who have rejected Jesus. And while I have your ear, just for one minute, here's my plea. Why don't you go home today? Find one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Pick Mark, maybe. It's the shortest Gospel. It's the easiest Take three hours, read it, 
And as you read it, listen to Jesus. Listen to what he says. Hear him out. Consider who he is. Study the claims that he makes. Chew on the message that he gives. And as you do this, ask God for understanding and ask him uh, to reveal Christ to you. And I can tell you, as you do this, you will discover the best news imaginable. So don't make the same mistake the people in Nazareth made in rejecting Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, you came and you found us and um, you proclaimed good news to us through Christ. We recognize that all of us here today are sinners, that no one here has lived a faultless life and that we need uh, your mercy. In fact, we are objects of your mercy and your grace. And we ask, Lord, that um, you might take this word and you might um, apply it to our hearts and our lives, that you would use it to change us and to conform us uh, to the uh, pattern of your word.